things that go bump in the night to the Haunted Horror Story and Podcast. Now, as most of you know, we've spent the last few weeks reading through an H.P. Lovecraft story. I hope you're ready for part three. I hope you've stayed out of the rain. So, why don't you take a seat, relax, and tune in for The Lurking Fear, Part 3, What the Red Glare Meant. On the tempest-wracked night of November 8th, 1921, with a lantern which cast channel shadows, I stood digging alone and idiotically in the grave of Jan Bartens. I had began to dig in the afternoon because a thunderstorm was brewing, and now that it was dark and the storm had burst above the maniacally thick foliage, I was glad. I believe that my mind was partially unhinged by events since August 5th, the demon shadow in the mansion, the general strain and disappointment, and the thing that had occurred in the city of an October storm. After that thing, I had dug a grave for one whose death I could not understand. I knew that others could not understand either, so I let them think Arthur Munro had wandered away. They searched but found nothing. The others might have understood, but I dared not frighten them more. I myself seemed strangely callous. The shock at the mansion had done something to my brain and I could think only of my quest for a horror now grown to cataclysmic stature in my imagination. A quest which the fate of Arthur Munro made me vow to keep silent and solitary. The scene of my excavations could alone have been enough to unnerve any ordinary man. Baleful primal trees of unholy size, age, and grotesqueness leered above me like the pillars of some hellish druidic temple, muffling the thunder, hushing the clawing wind, and admitting but little rain. Beyond the scarred trunks in the background, illuminated by faint flashes of filtered lightning, rose the damp, ivied towers of a deserted mansion, while somewhere nearer was the abandoned Dutch garden whose walks and beds were polluted by a white fungus, overnourished vegetation that never saw full daylight. And nearest of all was the graveyard, where deformed trees tossed insane branches as their roots displaced unhollowed slabs and sucked venom from what lay in the forest blackness. I could trace the sinister outlines of some of those low mounds which characterized the lightning-pierced region. History had led me to this archaic grave. History, indeed, was all I had after everything else ended in mocking Satanism. I now believed that the lurking fear was no material thing, but a wolfed fang ghost that rode the midnight lightning. And I believed because of the masses of local tradition that I had unearthed and searched with Arthur Munro, that the ghost was that of Janice Martens, who died in 1762. This is why I was digging idiotically in his grave, 
the Martens Mansion was built in 1670 by Garrett Martens, a wealthy New Amsterdam merchant who disliked the changing order under British rule and had constructed this magnificent domicile on a remote woodland summit whose untrodden solitude and unusual scenery pleased him. The only substantial disappointment encountered on this site was that which concerned the prevalence of violent thunderstorms in summer. When selecting the hill and building his mansion, Mynheer Martens had laid those frequent natural outbursts to some peculiarity of the year, but in time, he perceived that the locality was especially liable to such phenomena. At length, having found these storms injurious to his head, he fitted up a cellar into which he could retreat from their wildest pandemonium. Of Jarrett Martens's descendants, less is known than of himself, since they were all reared in hatred of the English civilization and trained to shun such of the colonists as accepted it. Their life was exceedingly excluded, and people declared that their isolation had made them heavy of speech and comprehension. In appearance, they were all marked by a peculiar inherited dissimilarity of eyes, one generally being blue and the other brown. Their social contexts grew fewer and fewer, till at last they took to intermarrying with the numerous menial class about the estate. Many of the crowded family degenerated and moved across the valley and merged with the population, which was later to produce the squatters we knew. The rest had struck sullenly to their ancestral mansion, becoming more and more clannish and taciturn, yet developing a nervous responsiveness to the frequent thunderstorm. Most of this information reached the outside world through young Jan Martens, who, from some kind of restlessness, joined the colonial army when news of the Albany Convention reached Tempest Mountain. He was the first of Jarrett's descendants to see much of the world, and when he returned in 1760, after six years of campaigning, he was hated as an outsider by his father, uncles, and brothers in spite of his dissimilar Martens' eyes. No longer could he share the peculiarities and prejudices of the Martenses, while the very mountain thunderstorms failed to intoxicate him as they had before. Instead, his surroundings depressed him, and he frequently wrote to a friend in Albany of plans to leave the paternal roof. In the spring of 1763, Jonathan Guilford, the Albany friend of John Martins, became worried about his correspondent's silence, especially in view of the conditions and quarrels at the Martins' mansion. Determined to visit Jan in person, he went to the mountains on horseback. His diary states that he reached Tempest Mountain on September 20, finding the mansion in great disrepair. The sullen, odd-eyed Martenses whose unclean animal aspect shocked him, told him in broken gutturals that Jan was dead. He had, they insisted, been struck by lightning the autumn before, and now lay buried beyond the neglected, sunken gardens. They showed the visitor the grave, barren and devoid of a marker. Something in the Martens' manner 
gave Gifford the feeling of repulsion and suspicion. And a week later, he returned with Spade and Maddock to explore the spot. He found what he expected, a skull crushed cruelly as if by savage blows. So, returning to Albany, he openly charged the Maltenses with the murder of their kinsmen. Legal evidence was lacking, but the story spread rapidly round the countryside, and from that time the Martenses were ostracized by the world. No one could deal with them, and their distant manor was shunned as an accursed place. Somehow they managed to live on independently by the products of their estate, for occasional light glimpsed from faraway hills attested their continued presence. These lights were seen as late as 1810, but towards the last they became very infrequent. Meanwhile, there grew up about the mansion and the mountain a body of diabolic legacy. The place was avoided with doubled assuredness and invested with every whispered myth tradition could supply. It remained unvisited till 1816, when the continuing absence of light was noticed. At that time, a party made investigators, finding the house deserted and partially in ruins. There were no skeletons about, so that departure, rather than death, was inferred. The clan seemed to have left several years before, and improvised penthouses showed how numerous it had grown prior to its migration. Its cultural levels had fallen very low, as proved by the decaying furniture and scattered silverware, which must have been long abandoned when its owners left. But, though the dreaded Martenses were gone, the fear of the haunted house continued and grew very acute when strange and new stories arose among the mountain descendants. There it stood, deserted, feared, and linked with the vengeful ghost of Jan Martens. There it still stood on the night I dug in Jan Martens's grave. I have described my protracted digging as idiotic, and such it indeed was in object and method. The coffin of Jan Martens had soon been unearthed. It now held only dust and nitre. But in my fury to exhume his ghost, I delved irrationally and clumsily down to where he had lain. God knows what I expected to find. I only felt that I was digging in the grave of a man whose ghost stalked by night. It is impossible to say what monstrous depth I had attained when my spade, and soon my feet, broke through the ground beneath. The event, under any circumstances, was tremendous for in the existence of a subterranean space here, my mad theories had terrible confirmation. My slight fall had extinguished the lantern, but I produced an electric pocket lamp and reviewed the small horizontal tunnel which lay indefinitely in both directions. It was amply large enough for a man to wiggle through, and though no sane person would have tried at that time, I forgot danger reason, and cleanliness, and my single-minded fever to unearth the lurking fear. Choosing the direction towards the house, I scrambled recklessly into the narrow burrow, squirming ahead blindly and rapidly, and flashing but seldom the lamp I kept before me. 
What language can describe the spectacle of a man lost in an infinitely abysmal earth, pawing, twisting, wheezing, scrambling madly through sunken convocations of a marial blackness without an idea of time, safety, direction, or definite object? There is something hideous in it, but that is what I did. I did it for so long that life faded to a far memory, and I became one with the moles and grubs of night and depths. Indeed, it was only by accident that after interminable writhings, I jarred my forgotten electric lamp alight so that it shone eerily along the burrow of caked loam that stretched and curved ahead. I had been scrambling this way for some time so that my battery had burned very low when the passage suddenly inclined sharply upward altering my mode of progress. And as I raised my glance, it was without preparation that I saw glistening in the distance two demonic reflections of my expiring lamp, two reflections growing with a baneful and unmistakable effulgence and provoking maddeningly nebulous memories. I stopped automatically, though lacking the brain to retreat. The eyes approached Yet of the thing it bore them, I could distinguish only a claw. But what a claw! Then far overhead, I heard a faint crashing which I recognized. It was the wild thunder of the mountain, raised to hysteric fury. I must have been crawling upward for some time, so now the surface was quite near. And the muffled thunder clattered, and those eyes still stared with vacacious viciousness. Thank God I did not then know what it was, else I should have died. But I was saved by the very thunder that had summoned it. For after a hideous wait, there burst from the unseen outside sky one of those frequent mountainward bolts, whose aftermath I had noticed here and there as gashes of disturbed earth and fulgaries of various sizes. With cyclopean rage, it tore through the soil above that damnable pit, blinding and deafening me, yet not wholly reducing me to a coma. In the chaos of sliding, shifting earth, I clawed and floundered helplessly till the rain on my head steadied me, and I saw that I had come to the surface in a familiar spot, a steep, unforested place on the southwest slope of the mountain. Recurrent lightning sheets illuminated the tumbled ground and the remains of a curious low hummock which had stretched down from the wooded higher slope, but there was nothing in the chaos to show my place of egress from the lethal catacombs. My brain was as great in a chaos as the earth, and as a distant red glare burst on the landscape from the south, I hardly realized the horror I had been through. But when two days later the locals told me what the red glare meant, I felt more horror than that which the mold burrow and the claw in the eyes had given, more horror because of the overwhelming implications. In that city, twenty miles away, an orgy of fear had followed the bolt which brought me above ground, and a nameless thing had dropped from an overhanging tree onto a weak-roofed cabin. It had done a deed, but the citizens had fired the cabin in frenzy before it could escape. It had been doing that deed 
at the very moment the earth caved in on the thing with claw and eye. Well, dear listeners, what do you think the lurking fear is? Let me know. Send me an email at hauntedhorrorstorian at gmail.com or find me on Facebook at Haunted Horror Story and Podcast. That's the end of part three. Be sure to tune in next week for the final part of H.P. Lovecraft's The Lurking Fear. Until then, stay spooky, and remember, sometimes it's more than just a story. <laughs>